Welcome to In Search of the Mind of God. We invite you to search with us the mind of God. When searching His Word, we can always be sure of our salvation will not be used on man's ideas or false feelings. It will never be our purpose to promote any denominational doctrine of any religious group. Man is fallible. God is not. This program is brought to you by the Port St. Lucie Church of Christ. We are located at 384 East Midway Road here in White City, Florida. This program contains previous recordings from Joe Wilson, who graduated from this life in 2018. We invite you to join us for worship. Personal Bible study is available, and we propose to know nothing among you, save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Also, a contradiction of the restoration of the Jewish state. Jesus' claims about the new birth demand this conclusion. The new birth was spiritual, not physical. This undercuts every Jewish claim of ancestry to Abraham to Abraham's blood lineage and to physical circumcision. Maybe you never thought about it like this, but roll it around in your mind. If we have the new birth, what do we need of the lineage of Abraham? If the lineage of Abraham has produced the seed that God promised, which was Christ, not the Jewish nation, then what need do we have then anymore of a Jewish state as a part of the promise of God? It would no longer be physical, would it? Now all these people that go around talking about being born again have contradicted their concept of premillennialism or that Jesus is coming back to rule and reign a thousand years on David's throne in Jerusalem because the Jews stopped him from doing that the first time. And don't understand that they're a contradiction of their own religion. The seed of a physical man and the womb of a woman is no longer a part of the ancestry of God. It's now spiritual. The seed, of course, is the word of God. In Luke, the eighth chapter and the fourth verse, Jesus says, as the sower went forth to sow, he sowed the word of God. That's the seed. When planted in the womb of the heart, the person then is obedient to the commandments of God, and that is to repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. Or as Paul writes in Romans 6, 3 through 7, Know ye not, or don't you remember, that so many of us as were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death. Therefore we are buried by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, we should also walk in a newness of life. The Messiah, then, 
has changed the entire ground or foundation of membership in the kingdom of God. It is no longer physical. It is spiritual. Now, I don't know what Nicodemus understood because I have no writings to determine what he had in mind when he heard what Jesus said. But he tried to take Jesus back to the physical when Jesus was talking to the spiritual when there came to him at night one named Nicodemus, a master of the Jew. And he said, Good master, we know thou art a teacher from God, for no man can do the miracles thou doest except God be with him. He took the claim away from Jesus here that he was the Messiah. Jesus, I know you can't do it. I know God's working through you, and he's done that through a lot of Jewish prophets. Amen, Lord? The Lord said, wait a minute. If I'm not the Messiah, if I'm not the Son of God, if I didn't come to this world to save the church of Christ, why are you coming to me? Go somewhere else. The Messiah has changed the ground of membership. It's no longer to trace my ancestry back to some Judaic ancestral record. It is now to chase my ancestry back to the seed that's planted in my heart. To Abraham and his seed were the promise made. He saith, not unto seeds is of many, but to one seed, and that seed is Christ. So I trace my ancestral record to Christ. I don't trace it back to Germany like the Lutherans do. I don't trace it back to Rome like the Roman Catholics. I don't trace it back to America like the Seventh-day Adventists and a lot of these denominational people do. Our beginning starts with Christ. I told somebody the other day in a discussion, when they asked me what church I preached for, I told them the Church of Christ. Oh, that's the Pentecostal. Well, I said when we began, it began on the day of Pentecost. But as we began, there was issued the commands from the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords through the Holy Spirit in baptismal measure that those who wanted to be saved Repent and be baptized. We do not, in any sense of the word, try to claim any ancestral records through any man or to any movement. We go back to the seed, and that seed is Christ. This sets aside entirely all the claims on the old ground of physical lineage. Now, from Nicodemus' earliest memory, his fleshly birthright, which gave him membership in the old church of the wilderness, was the ground of membership to which his attention had been directed. And there had been on him the mark of the beast, or physical circumcision, which was the sign or the seal or the proof that he was a member. He'd never heard such a thing as the spiritual qualification for membership in the church of Christ it had never been preached for in the days of Nicodemus that church had not been established 
as far as Nicodemus was concerned, flesh, not spirit, blood, not faith, was that which constituted birth. Jesus came to Nicodemus and he said, you want to be a part of the kingdom of God? Verily, verily, I say unto you, you must be born again. The first birth was physical. That chased its lineage back to Abraham. This new birth, which puts us into the kingdom of heaven, which makes Jesus our king and the church our home, is built on the ground of the claims of the Son of God who loved us enough and gave himself for us. Abraham's sons were born in his house. You hear about the house of Hohenzollerns. You hear about the house of this or house of that in king lineage. The house of somebody means in the lineage of. All of Abraham's sons came from Abraham's house. It was the first birth, a type of that which would cause us to understand the second. It was of a father and a very specific, explicit mother. For it was true that Abraham had other children. But no child came through Abraham and Sarah, but the homonogenes, or as Isaac is called, the typical reference type of which Christ would become the antitype. Jesus is the homonogenes, as was Isaac. He's the only one of his kind. He's the only one of his essence. He's the only one of his being. He is God in the flesh. Now, no man could receive circumcision and it be removed. I says, well, that treats me to the good part of once saved, always saved. Trouble was, if you were circumcised physically, yeah, it cannot be removed, but physical circumcision never brought salvation at all. Under the law of Moses, or the patriarchal dispensation, which circumcision had nothing, but under the law of Moses, circumcision, Paul says, promised you nothing. If you've been circumcised and try to keep the law, you're falling from grace. Galatians 5 and 4. No, no man can remove that sign and live. At that time, medicine has changed. But as medicine has changed, so Jesus also changed the rules. A spiritual father was to replace the fleshly. A spiritual womb was to replace the physical. This would replace any grounds of specialty and purpose God would have ever had with the Jewish people. And now a physical people has been replaced by a spiritual. This startled Nicodemus. It was like setting aside to him the law of God. It was indeed superseding one ground of membership with another, but it was a different kind. Now, it was not to be physical. Now, it was to not be of Abraham's likeness. Now, it's to be like God. For God is a spirit. 
And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Abraham was a great man, but sinned. Jesus was the son of God in a human body that never sinned. Nicodemus may not have appreciated the ascendancy of his family relationship at the juncture of their discussion. But surely thereafter, he had to appreciate, man, if it's something special for me to be of the seed of Abraham, think what it's like to be of the seed of God Almighty. A Jew was then going to be nothing. Circumcision would be nothing. Now what was to be important was to be in the new creation. Matters now, now whose blood flowed in our veins. What matters now is who blood, whose blood washed away our sins. Whether you were a fleshly descent from Isaac or Ishmael, from Jacob or from Esau, or whether you were from some nation other than that would not matter. And all they who claim to be from Ishmael through Abraham have lost their claim of being special as they who had their ancestry from Isaac through Abraham. Because the question now is not, is it Abraham's blood? Is it Abraham's now? Faith. See, Paul would write, we are now the children of God by faith. In Galatians 3.26. He saith not unto seeds as of many, but to one seed, that seed is Christ. By faith, this new birth is something that we comprehend. No, we can't physically see it. No, we can't physically touch it. We know where the birth occurs. We know what is consummating that birth in being resurrected in newness of life. But to see ourselves then given to or added to the spiritual mother or the church of Christ as a babe from the womb sometimes doesn't satisfy the longing of some people who lack everything physical. Now, there's only one birth here mentioned, not two. Jesus didn't say, Nicodemus, you've got to be born the second time again from another womb. No, Jesus said you've got to be born of water and the Spirit. Some let on like there's two births, though, that are mentioned. They try to let on like that there are two births that are talked about. They claim that this birth had to be that, that of which Jesus was speaking when the water breaks before a physical birth in a physical ancestry. And that the spirit is that that makes a, its place through that birth canal so that a, ch- a child is born again. But the ones that teach this ruin their religion. They actually teach baptism. Oh, they don't understand it. 
And they teach that baptism is a must. See, if the water doesn't break, the spirit can't flow through the channel so the child is not spiritually born again in their doctrine. And such a doctrine destroys their own religion because their doctrine teaches that baptism has nothing to do with salvation. It's just an outward sign of an inward grace done to show the world you've already been saved. But to be born of water and of the Spirit is equal to be stated as to be born of a mother and a father. Now somebody says, you know, I've been born of the Spirit. Well, now let's talk about that a minute. If you compare that to a spiritual situation, you got to say then that the Spirit is female in gender. Have you ever read about the spirit she or the spirit her? Or do you read about the spirit he as in a masculine gender? And if you're going to try to go to the physical birth as a reality, then the Holy Spirit would have to be female, not male. Look at John 16, 13. Listen to me. How be it when he, the spirit of truth, shall come. He shall not speak of himself. But whatsoever he saith unto you, that shall you do. For he shall give you of mine. For he will show you of things to come. You ever wanted somebody to give you proof more than once about the means by which we have the seed planted in the womb? Watch. He, 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 he. How could you get a she out of five times being mentioned? He. The water, when mentioned in the Bible, was in the feminine gender. One that I remember is in Jonah, the second chapter, in the fifth, fifth verse, where the Bible says, And the sea ceased her raging. Now, if you're trying to make the mother and father of the spiritual birth a, fig, a, a physical analogy that you can understand, even the gender is wrong. We cannot be born of the Spirit. It takes water, honey. You can't just be begotten by a man. There has to be a womb in which that seed is planted. Now, I know that the homosexuals and the lesbians are trying to get it to where they adopt children to give people the idea that they can raise them as well as those who God has constituted part of the home. But according to the Bible, that cannot be. What makes you think then that the people who have not been born again, who don't enjoy the message of God, who are not thrilled by the love that God had in sending Christ and then Christ sending the Holy Spirit that the seed of the word of God can be planted in our hearts would enjoy heaven? If they don't like one of it, how do you figure they're going to like the other? 
how you figure that these people are going to lack the worship services. If you go and look at denominationalism, you can see the answer to that question. They're not satisfied with the worship services that are patterned in the New Testament in the Church of Christ. I was showing somebody the other day the building here, and they were talking about how beautiful the edifice was and how it was such a nice, homey place. And looked at me in a strange look on their face, but said, well, where's the piano and organ? I looked back and smiled, and I said, in my heart. They looked at me kind of funny. I said, yeah, I know. You're trying to figure out how a piano and an organ can get in my heart. I'm not talking about my physical heart. I'm talking about into my spiritual heart. We are commanded to worship God. These pews aren't. We're commanded to worship God. These songbooks aren't. We're commanded to do things spiritually and not physically. We are to sing and make melody in our heart to the Lord. And he didn't include any physical instrument of music to be used. They don't enjoy that kind of worship. Look around you in denominationalism. They got the bongo bands and the beats and the this and all the special music and all the witnessing and testifying and all that. They have everything in there but the Lord's Supper. Now, they don't dig that. It doesn't do anything for them, man. We had some people come the other day and one of the members of the church Refused to serve them the Lord's Supper and they were offended. I went to their house not too long after because I knew what had happened, I thought. And they were telling me about how offended they were that somebody refused to give them the supper. I said, well, first of all, they wouldn't have done that had they known you. They did that because they did know you. And they knew you weren't a member of the body of Christ. And they didn't have the right to withhold that. That's not a problem. But they were trying to do you the biggest favor you could have ever had done. If you were a member of the body of Christ. If you'd been blood bought. If you'd been entered into the family of the kingdom of God. They were trying to keep you from eating and drinking greater damnation. Than you would have been participating in by not coming at all. But since you weren't a member of the family of God. It wouldn't affect you at all. Jesus said, let's face the facts. The sinner will not enjoy. Now, that's my word. The sinner will not appreciate. Now, that's my idea. The sinner cannot be satisfied with the new birth, with the way the church worships. It won't be an exhilarating process to them. They can't feel the beat, and the beat goes on. You know how the songs go. They can't get somebody up here to give some little personal witness or testimony in song and say, look what Jesus did for me that he didn't do for you. They're not up here trying to brag in song. So how do you think the sinner will enjoy heaven?
And he's going to hate the utmost passion of the fires of hell. Christ made us. He made us to worship. He made us and gave us choice. Our choice has been that we've taken on a stranger, an evil spirit called Satan. And Satan is intent on making you unhappy with the plan of God. But after you have been judged at death, it will have then been too late. But Christ wants to save you from that. And he now gives us a way out. And it is something he tells Nicodemus that you must do. Have you ever noticed in the New Testament, denominational language does not exist? Talking to people in the world and they'll say, you know, I got saved. I get religion. I, I, I was moved by the Holy Ghost. Do you know what the biblical language is? It's not what you get. It's what you do. They said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? It was told to Cornelius, send for Simon Peter and he'll tell thee what thou oughtest to do. It's something we do, not what we get. I have trouble with some brethren every once in a while I want to talk about getting baptized. I don't know how you do that. But speaking to Nicodemus, Jesus said, I, I said unto you, you must be born again if you were ever to expect to be happy. If you ever expect to go to heaven. And God is the only spirit who cares whether or not you want to be happy. Now, there are four things that Christ demands you must do. You must have faith. In Hebrews, the 11th chapter, in the 6th verse, the Bible says, Without faith it is impossible to please God. For they that believe in God must believe that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. It is that which God has commanded. You can't be saved without faith. But if all you have is faith, and that means that you've not obeyed, then faith only won't save you. Listen to Brother James, James the second chapter, and the 24th through the 26th verses. Then we also have to have faith. Now that's indispensable, and it changes the thinking of the heart. Because what God has done in this new birth is figured out a way that the heart had to be changed so that the message of God can be activated. There's a difference in someone who loves you and somebody who wants to use you. There's a lot of times people use you and they don't love you. And that's contradictory to the concept of Christianity that calls itself faith. Faith is the first part. But everything else has to follow that faith. You can't set any of it aside. No faith, forget happiness. No faith, forget heaven. Then the command is to repent. Oh, except you repent, you'll all likewise perish. Luke 13, 3. Didn't he say, you must repent? Wait a minute. It will. Except 
you be born again. What does it mean, except? You can look at a verb and look at the way Jesus defined it, except a man be born again, except a man be born again. How many times would he have to say it the same way? Marvel not that I said unto you, yeah, must be born again. Except and must are the same thing. You just can't ever figure that you can be a part of the kingdom of heaven unless you've been born again. And except you repent or your heart is changed so that your will becomes the will of God, you're not going to submit to spiritual birth any more than a woman will not submit to a man she can ever expect to be impregnated and submit to physical birth. You can't dispense with repentance. It just can't be done. Confession. The Bible says, unless you confess me before men, I'll not confess you before the Father and his holy angels. The example of the plan of salvation is portrayed and lived out in the book of Acts, the 8th chapter, beginning with the 26th verse where Philip and the eunuch ran into each other by the providence of God. The Bible says in verse 35, they came on their way to a certain water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? Well, if you'll read from verse 26 through about verse 35, you'll never find baptism mentioned. You'll never find water mentioned. The Bible says he began at the same scripture and preached unto him, Jesus. Where was it that the eunuch heard about water? Oh, I got it. The preacher was preaching Jesus. Now these people that tell you you don't have to be baptized in water to be saved, just who are they preaching? I should have thought. John Wesley. Yeah. John Smith that started the Baptist church. Yeah. The Pope. He's messing up the Seventh-day Adventist now because he's having his services on Saturday anymore. Somebody ought to talk to the boy and straighten him out. If you refuse to confess your faith before men, oh, somebody says, I'd never confuse that. Oh, yes, the sad part is you've never been given the opportunity to. I know of no denomination, and I could be corrected. I'm not always right. But I know of no denomination that requires people to confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God before they're saved, except the Church of Christ. Philip and Eunuch came to the water. Eunuch said, See, here's water. What hindered me to be baptized? He said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. Oh, that's a condition? And in denominationalism, that condition is never offered. Oh, no, they want you to believe that God has, for Christ's sake, forgiven you of your sin. Or they want you to tell about your salvation experience. Either in the back pew, the front pew, out in the altar, uh, at your home, or in the back seat of a car, or, or when the Spirit moved over you, or whatever garbage they're getting. He said, if. You confess that Jesus is the Son of God. I then can baptize you into Christ. The eunuch answered and said, I believe 
that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Immediately, they commanded the chariot to stand still. They didn't wait two or three weeks, two or three months. Preacher didn't wait and get him up a pack of 25 or 30, make it worth him getting wet. Immediately, they commanded the chariot to stand still. They went down into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Say it says you not must be baptized. Wait another minute. In Acts the ninth chapter, talking to Saul of Tarsus, Ananias, or Jesus told him, Arise and go into the city, and there it shall be told thee what thou must do. Not your duty? Well, I guess it's not to tell people they got to be baptized if you don't want to. Ananias came to Saul of Tarsus and he said, The Lord Jesus that appeared unto thee on the way hath appeared unto thee, thou must know his will and see that just one and hear the words of his mouth. And now why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. If you refuse to be baptized, you refuse the commandments of God. Pharisees and the Sadducees refused the counsel of God not being baptized of John's baptism. Now we have an authority greater than John. An authority greater than man. We have an authority called God whose name is Jesus Christ. And he commands you to be baptized. You say that won't make me happy. Well, don't forget about heaven. Forget about what they call the streets of gold. and There's no gold in those streets, I hate to tell you. So if you're going up there to hit a little and make yourself a little extra money, you're wasting your time. Those are spiritual discussions about a spiritual place described by some physical reality that you understand. You want to be happy? You want to have peace in your heart? You want to have your sins forgiven? You must be born again. You can start on the road to happiness that ends in the portals of glory. And you can learn to enjoy the presence of God because of the benefits received. Regeneration, or to be born again, only began when the new birth began. Jesus said in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall be seated on the throne of His glory... You apostles will be seated on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. The new birth couldn't have begun until the apostles were empowered by the Spirit of God from on high. And on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came in a rushing mighty wind and it filled all the house wherein they were sitting, there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire and it sat upon each of them and they, the apostles, began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. They cried out to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we get? Uh Uh-uh, no, wrong book. Men and brethren, what shall we do? Oh, that doesn't make you happy. How are you going to be happy in heaven? Oh, there's no rules and no regulations in heaven. Says who? 
Do you know where there's no rules and no regulations, there's confusion and anarchy? And the very first principle we learn from God is that there are rules and regulations. I was listening to the radio the other day and I heard somebody singing, (coughs) Lord, just build me a cabin over in the corner of glory land. I thought, I don't want a cabin. Do you want a cabin? Oh, that's humility. Well, I need to be as humble as I can, but I don't. Do you want a cabin? Jesus said, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. Do you think the Lord would put one of his anointed in a dwelling place? Now, the King James translates it, mansions. Not a cabin. A dwelling place. A place reserved for the sons of God. What will you be happy with if you can't start off with being happy with the premise that would allow you into the kingdom of God that only itself is going to heaven? You don't like the fact that you got to be a member of the church of Christ. I don't know how to make you happy with telling you a lie. So the truth is, you got to be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven. I think that's pretty plain. You don't have, you're not happy with the way we worship. You want us to have a rock and roll band. You want us to have soloists. You want us to get up here and put on a show instead of participate in a worship service. You want us to thrill you and spill you and enthuse you with the singing accompanied by instruments and bands. And today they've even got it on tape so you can just press a button. You don't even have to sing. So if you're not happy with a cappella singing, what part of a piano do you think will make it into the portals of glory? I'm asking. So you're not happy with that. You're not happy with the fact that you've got to be baptized to be saved. You're not happy with the authority of Jesus. You're not happy with the examples given in the New Testament. How is it that you can be happy? Oh, I can tell you of three things that will make a man die happy. Paul said, I'm now Paul the aged, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished the course, and I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give unto me in that day, and not unto me only. Here, now listen, are you listening? To all them that love his appearing. Had a man tell me the other day, boy, I'll tell you, I saw your son, and he said, would you be ready if Jesus did actually come back? He said, I'd be scared to death. I said, not if you were a part of the kingdom of God. When Jesus breaks through the sky at the second coming, are you going to be in fear and dread and anxious anticipation of damnation? Or are you going to cry out, even come, Lord Jesus? What's God going to do? that you're going to blindly ever be happy with. Well, one thing he's not going to do is allow somebody to contradict his law 
and not keep his plan in obedience and not a demand that you teach others to do the same. If you're here and need to respond to the invitation of the gospel, Jesus still says, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Come as we stand and sing. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord. We hope you have profited from today's study of In Search of the Mind of God. If you would like a recording of today's program, please visit our website, our podcast on iTunes and Google Play, or even our YouTube channel. Remember, never take man's word, only God's word, the Bible. Demanding a book, chapter, and verse for everything you accept on its belief. Thank you for listening to today's broadcast, In Search of the Mind of God, with graduated preacher Joe Wilson. good to see everyone here today. Tonight, I'd like to discuss a little bit about worship. Do you know when you worship? And do you know how you worship? Now, I want to put a little bit of a, a, a scenario out here. So let's suppose that this morning, when you and I came to worship with a group of Christians in the area where Jesus had actually lived, we're actually stepping back in the time now to worship with a group of Christians just 20 years after Jesus was executed. Now, for us, three circumstances that make this Sunday morning worship strange and a little bit unusual. Now, the first strange thing that we would see is that Sunday is the day that begins their work week. Saturday is that country's religious day. For them, Sunday is the same thing as Monday is to us. It's not a weekend day. It's not a day... It's the day we go back to work with normal everyday life and normal work are occurring just like it would on a Tuesday or a Thursday of that week. In fact, only Christians worship today on Sunday. Everyone else had worshiped yesterday on Saturday. Now, the second strange thing is that there would be no church building. These Christians did not own any property at that time. Early Christians owned no buildings dedicated to Christian worship. If one of the Christian members owned a home with enough space, the Christians would gather together in this group would likely be meeting in that home. If the number of Christians were too many to meet in one home, they they likely are meeting in several different homes. If there isn't a home available, they just meet somewhere that that they will not be disturbed. Now, the third strange thing is that since today would be a work day, all of them would have to go to work. So they meet very early in the morning before work. This morning, we are meeting with them before sunrise because this is the only time everyone is free to actually come. Everyone is dressed in his or her work clothes because they will walk from worship to go do their job. And this helps us understand why Paul meant when he told Christians in Corinth that they assembled to take the Lord's Supper that they should wait on one another, which is in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 33. It says, Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. It's important. Wait for one another. Now, when we meet with this group, two things should really impress us. Everyone wants to be there. And everyone, or worship, is obviously important to each one of these people. Now, from the collective information that we've gathered about Christians at that time, 
As this group worships, they partake in the Lord's Supper. They sing about Jesus Christ, and they charge each other with the moral responsibilities as Christians. Don't cheat anyone. Don't steal anything. Don't engage in sexual sin. Don't deceive anybody and be trustworthy. Now, this sounds like the instructions written in the, in the epistles, but this was the kind of moral instruction that was given to a person wanting baptism. And it was the kind of moral commitment Christians were urged to remember apart from the spiritual commitment that is made. In the New Testament, epistles are verses of some early songs that Christians sang about Jesus. Let's take a look in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 14. It says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. If we look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, one of their songs might be like this. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Let this mind be in you, which was also in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus, who being from God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no repu- reputation, taking from of bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross." Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. And at that time of Jesus, every knee shall bow of those in heaven and of those of earth and of those under earth and that gave or that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory God the Father. In 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16 is probably another one that we would hear. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed in the world, and received up in glory. When you, as a Christian, think about worshiping, what are your basic thoughts about this worship? Now, let's begin with your personal view of worship. Now, what is this view? Which of these three views of worship are most likely your personal view of worship? Now, worship is an obligation that each Christian must fulfill, a command that each Christian must obey, a spiritual opportunity created by this privilege that we have. If we worship basically on obligation, why should anyone who is not a Christian be interested in worship because of your sense of obligation. Now, have you ever been religiously attracted to somebody else's religion? Is this a typical conversation that you would hear with somebody that you would have? Now, I have an example here of both us, one of us here, or with Billy the Baptist. Now, if you ask Billy the Baptist, what do you do, what do you worship on Sunday? He'd probably say, That's just something that I have to do. Well, why do you go every Sunday? I was taught that that is just what I had to do. I really don't understand. Why are you so religious? Billy the Baptist responded back with, It's just my obligation. Oh, great, you would say. I understand. Can I go with you? 
Is that a, a typical conversation that you would have with somebody that, that would try to convert you over to, to Christ? Now, if your worship is primarily just a command, is worshiping a matter of bowing before divine power? Is this something that we're commanded to do? Just bow before Christ? God is powerful, and he said to do it. You don't have to understand it or like it. You just have to do it, so we must do it, right? Is that what God tells us to do? (laughs) Is this the essence of our worship? Now, this is my view of worship. Worship is a spiritual opportunity created by the privilege of having salvation in Jesus Christ and being the child of God. It is the opportunity to join my spiritual family as we thank God for our salvation. It's the opportunity to publicly renew my commitment to Christ. It's also the opportunity to publicly affirm my faith and my hope. And it's also the opportunity to encourage each other for the fight, to provide that good fight of spiritual strength. And also, on Sundays, partake in the Lord's Supper, as we're commanded to do. Now, do you think worship is just a mechanical or a formal prescribed procedure that a Christian must perform as he meets with other Christians on Sunday? It does not involve what you feel or what you think, just only what you do. You just show up on Sunday, sit in the pew, listen, and go home. Is it based on specific formalities to be done exactly in a proper procedure? If you just do what you're supposed to do and do it exactly as you're supposed to do it, is God just satisfied with this, that we've just done our duty and shown up and gone home? Do you think worship is a commitment to a movement or a church? You have to be committed to the restoration movement. So everything about worship must be prescribed in the restoration type of movement. You are committed to the Church of Christ, so worship must be done the way the Church of Christ does it. Have you heard anything given about the explanation that the Church of Christ, this is the way the Church of Christ does it? That is just what the Church of Christ does, and that's the only explanation that we have on why we do things? Do you think that worship is a biblical fellowship experience with other Christians and with God, Jesus Christ, and also the Holy Spirit? Now, I'm encouraging and being encouraged by every other Christian who has been baptized in the Christ. I'm also affirming that we are brothers and sisters within Christ, and that I'm rejoicing in the fact that God has accepted me on his own. I'm declaring that my faith in the resurrection and the return of Jesus Thus, I am worshiping with fellow Christians, and I am renewing my strength and my bond between us and between God and myself. Now, I know when worship occurs when my, my body is seated in a pew in a church building when the congregation assembles, right? But what I do while I'm there is not important. <laughs> what I think about when I'm there is not important. What I feel while I'm there is not important. And is that important to physically be there? Wait, doesn't worship occur when I pay attention to the sermon, but the, the real heart and core of worship is just the sermon? That if I don't go to sleep and if I pay attention, if I remember something that the preacher sent, says, that means that I've worshiped, right? Or is worship occurring only when I physically partake in the Lord's Supper? But 
when I do this, it doesn't matter what I'm thinking, what I'm doing. I just eat a little piece of bread, drink some grape juice. That means I've worshipped. That means I've fulfilled everything, right? Of course not. Now, worship occurs when my heart and mind talk to God. When I sing, when I pray, when I partake in the Lord's Supper, when I contribute, when I listen to the sermon, and when I greet my brothers and sisters. Now, why do you attend the worship services on Sundays? I'm truly thrilled that everyone actually shows up and that they do so with the right mindset and the right frame of heart. I don't want you to give me the answer to the question, but I want you to answer to yourself. Why do you show up? Which of the following answers would you probably give yourself? I would feel guilty if I didn't come to church every Sunday. I don't want to go to hell, and I'm afraid that if I don't come, I will. I'm doing my duty. I want to give my life the right balance, and I must include some type of worship involved. It is important to my marriage. Oh, it's just important to my children. Or there is some good in all those answers, but all of those answers are inadequate on why we should go to church and why we should worship. If these kinds of reasons are your reasons for worshiping God, then you're missing the greatest joys and blessing that God offers us. Now, some of these things include worship to praise God who forgives you of all sin because he loves you and is filled with mercy to show genuine gratitude to someone who loves you is rich and fulfilling. Now, worship to thank Jesus Christ for dying on the cross so that you will not have to die without salvation and spend eternity separated from God. Worship to declare your faith in the resurrection and return of Jesus Christ. When we learn the experience, the deeper meaning and the value of this type of worship, there is joy, encouragement, strength, and renewal that we receive each Sunday. Now let's consider this illustration real quick. For many, you can marry for security, to have kids, and to escape living alone and have a marriage that is somewhat between miserable and just bearable, right? Or you can marry to build companionship based on love and respect for each other and discover one of the greatest joys and blessings that God gave us. The same thing is true with worship. The world pounds on us every day. Evil is constantly looking for ways to invade our lives, to create guilt, to cause us pain and suffering. Everything in our lives is under attack. If it's just me against the world, me is going to lose by myself. If you enjoyed today's sermon, read our regularly updated blog for insightful articles by visiting us online at pslchurchofchrist.com. If you would like to watch previous sermons, they can be viewed on our YouTube channel at youtube.com forward slash pslchurchofchrist. Connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash pslchurchofchrist. Or if you prefer to visit us in person to learn more on Sunday morning at 9.30 a.m. and 6 p.m., as well as Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. And you can visit us at 384 East Midway Road next to Walgreens. See you next week.